You are listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Lavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. Today we're talking the Nixon tapes again with specific focus on President Nixon's conversations about how to avert an economic crisis in the early 1970s. On August 15, 1971, President Nixon shocked the world again, a month after he revealed that he was going to China. He announced on national television that he would be ending America's involvement in the Bretton Woods system and ending the practice of backing the dollar with the precious mineral gold. Our guest again is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. He's the nation's foremost expert on the Nixon White House tapes and founder of NixonTapes.org. Luke, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Jonathan. Let's start with some definitions and background um, on this very complex issue. The Bretton Woods Agreement, um, what was it and when was it made? Well, the Bretton Woods Agreement was uh, from 1944. Um, it takes the name of uh, the the city where it was uh, negotiated um, uh, in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. And, um, you know, the, the, the bottom line is, um, so leaders from the West, um, economists, bankers, political leaders, were meeting in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in 1944, um, it was getting near the end of World War II. I think it's um, you know sort of the the light at the end of the tunnel could be seen you know in the distance, although there was quite a bit to to go still yet in '44 and and then defeating defeating Japan uh, through the summer of '45. Um, but the short answer is it was close enough to the end of the war, certainly the European side of the war, that leaders in the West, uh, because the war had destroyed many Western economies, especially uh, in in Europe, but it had also greatly taxed the American economy, which had moved um, dramatically over from civilian production to wartime production to assist uh, our allies as well as to prepare our own wartime effort. Uh, they were meeting; these leaders were meeting in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, to decide how are we going to rebuild the world economy when this war is over. What do we want it to look like? Uh, what in the future do we want to do that might resemble past practice? Where, in some cases, do we want to make a clean break from past practice? So it was really a, a future, a forward-looking conference uh, in 1944 where they were deciding um, how are we going to put this economy back together again? What did it mean for the American economy um... And uh, what, what, I mean, in, in large part, what did it mean? How did it, how did it have an impact on the American economy, the domestic economy, and, and, and how it was woven into the international order? Well, I think, you know, as Americans, we've always grown up believing, you know, believing our side was uh, um, believed in democracy and capitalism and free markets. Um, but there's no more pure example of a free market than there was during the Soviet Union uh, of a centrally controlled market. Uh, the fact is, on, on each of our ends of the continuum, there's a, a mixture of free market and, and controls that are put into place. And so in our system, we have a number of controls. I mean, we have, for example, a central bank, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank, as, as most governments do. We have uh, political controls. You know, we have a process to appoint Federal Reserve uh, board governors. Uh, we have politicians and, and, and legislators who are very much involved in economic policy in the country. And, of course, the president sits on top of all those, uh, not just in terms of what the president does, but in setting the tone for our economic policy. Um, the, the, what the Bretton Woods Agreement really sought to do was 
to be a kind of framework, an international framework, uh, where we would we would agree with, along with our allies for the controls we would have. And a, a central component of this is to have um, a system um, based on, you know, a, a kind of system where the fulcrum of the system was the U.S. dollar. So the dollar was was intentionally created as the strongest currency at the end of World War II because, frankly, the American economy was the strongest economy at the end of World War II with so many being devastated. And a central part of, of that fulcrum was that, that uh, gold would be fixed, uh, an ounce of gold would be fixed at $35 per ounce. And so that became kind of the hub, the fulcrum of this global monetary system and, and all the other major currencies of the world, uh, the French franc, uh, the Swiss franc, the, the German Deutschmark, the British pound, the Italian lira, and so on and so forth. Many of these currencies all uh, went out of business when they were replaced by uh, the euro, many of them, um, were all then linked in a kind of a hub-and-spoke system at various fixed conversion rates between gold and thus with the U.S. dollar. So it was really kind of hammering out what would the details of the system be, um, and it would provide a, uh, a safety net, an economic safety net, uh, as uh, uh, post-war fluctuations were occurring in all these economies. And so it was really designed to be a, a, de- a decision about how big the safety net would be, how wide it would be that we would erect underneath all these economies with the U.S. playing the leading role. And what was happening, you know, fast forward to the late 1960s and the late 1970s, um, what was the state of the American economy then? Well, you know, when you get into the 60s, it's a, a curious problem starts to develop. Um, it, you know, the whole system was based on the fact that we would have this unmovable link at $35 per ounce of gold, and the U.S. responsibility was pretty simple. Uh, the U.S. responsibility was that we would maintain gold reserves, our federal government, and these are, these are in Fort Knox and Kentucky, is where the gold reserves were stored, uh, and we would agree to impose a kind of fiscal monetary discipline at home by making sure that we don't print more dollars than we have gold to back them at that rate of $35 per ounce of gold. Uh, that was basically our system, uh, whereas the other nations of the world, the discipline they had imposed on them was, well, one, they'd never had a completely independent monetary system because they were, they were also linked, uh, their currencies were linked to gold and to the dollar, and then they also agreed basically that they that they would not um, uh, cash in their their currencies and and take all our gold. Um, and so you know it was kind of a a system that had an ebb and a flow. And um, we learned later that after 1958, we really were we started a slip, and we the United States uh, was was no longer strictly adhering to this $35 per ounce of gold held in reserve in Fort Knox. And then this was exacerbated throughout the 60s. Uh, a, you've got the challenge of, a, uh, of, Viet- of Vietnam and a, really a global U.S. foreign policy where the U.S. is involved uh, in, a, in a lot of parts of the world, and we have to pay the price of that. Um, and so we had to print more money to do that. And then secondly, expansive domestic policy at home, uh, led by many of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs. You know, this was the classic challenge of, you know, guns or butter, um, as economists refer to it. And we learned throughout the 60s that it became more and more difficult to pay for both guns and butter, that is, an expansive foreign policy parallel with a very expansive uh, domestic policy. These are both very expensive. 
And so we move further and further away from our original commitment to, to maintain this discipline at home and this link between dollars and gold. So the whole system, we were, we were building up to the need of, uh, of, uh, of somehow modifying the system by the time Nixon reached the White House. And when did it really hit the Nixon administration's radar? Was it, was it day one, uh, January 20th, 1969? That's a, it's a great question. You know, I think several presidents were, were very concerned about this. You know, I was recently listening to a lot of Kennedy tapes from 60, 1963, and he is very concerned. I mean, I hear him talking about this more than I ever heard Nixon do. Um, I mean, Kennedy's concerned in the summer of 63 and in the spring. He's worried about the whole system collapsing. Um, but ultimately, his advisors tell him, well, you know, our predictions are in five years. The economy will be so much better. We don't really have to worry about this just yet. Put it off. And so Nixon has a fast forward five years to 68. Nixon has a, on his campaign a series of economists um, advising him on this problem. Uh, he's got some, you know, and there's a whole range of opinion among the economists. You know, some say don't do anything about this. You'll cause another depression. It's just too risky. Uh, you've got others uh, advocating, you know, just float that with a change in administration, because no matter what, Johnson wasn't going to be president. It was either going to be a, a new president who was a Democrat or a new one who was a Republican. That this was an ideal time uh, to uh, just make a break with the past system. Then you've got some like Milton Friedman, who wasn't yet as famous as he would be in the, as Nobel Prize winner in the, the mid-70s, but he was saying, offering kind of a third way that, that – uh, uh, now is the time to float, just break from the system entirely, that we move beyond the original need for the system. Uh, but Nixon ultimately decided not, not to do anything more than he had to. It was just seemed to be too risky. His uh, advisors were split down the middle on just about every aspect of it. Uh, but, it so, but fast forward a couple of years, Nixon, Nixon realizes he's very close, to, and, he, and he would have no choice, uh, not only to do something, but to involve a great deal of his personal time, uh, beginning in the spring of 1971, uh, I think he he pretty well knew he was coming close to having to do something. This is an interesting time um, around the spring and then summer of 1971. President is um, the, the Vietnam War is still going on. Um, this is a critical time for both um, planning for uh, possible summits with the or strategizing about possible summits with the Chinese and the Soviet Union, and then you have this other international um, issue come into play. Let's listen to the first conversation. Let's give the first conversation of July 27th, uh, 1971. This is a conversation between um, President Nixon, uh, Treasury Secretary uh, John Connolly, and the assistant to the president for international economics, uh, Pete Peterson. If you were the high, if you were the high sensitivity with this, if we ever had any secret. Uh, and uh, she and I are basically on the same wave of uh, any question. Uh, 
Later on in this conversation, um, Connolly explains that we have a negative balance of trade of $360 million. Uh, April and May uh, were over $200 million deficits in each of those months. And this is the, th- this is the third successive month in a row. Um, and the reserve assets are the lowest in the United States since 1938. Um, how did we get to this point? Well, you know, it's it's complicated. Um, you know, so going back to 1958, which Connolly also references, that that that's that seems to be the year that most economists believe that uh, the United States did not adhere or is not able to adhere um, to this strict tenet of the Bretton Woods Agreement, this link between dollars and gold at the rate of thirty-five dollars per uh, per ounce of gold. But I think it's a bigger issue than that. Um, you, you know, the, the U.S., as I said, was the fulcrum of the system. Uh, the U.S. was the only nation in the world that probably could act as the fulcrum of the system in 1944 when it was set up. Um, I think one issue is that there was a, a lack of sufficient monetary discipline at home uh, with successive political leaders, Republicans and Democrats, to adhere to the system. I think number two as Europe rebuilt in the post-war period, as Japan rebuilt, and you know, nations like Germany and Japan had really almost a miraculous 30 years of growth from 1945 to 1975, um, you know, this harkens back to Nixon's point that, that his presidency really marked the end of the post-war period. Uh, the U.S. wasn't needed in the same way in the early 70s as it was in the late 1940s. Uh, the U.S. had the right to no longer serve uh, as the fulcrum of the system. Um, the other countries, like in, in Europe and Japan, uh, were not only standing up on their own now, but in many ways, as you can hear in some of these very long conversations, which is ranges, some of these conversations are the longest ones on the tapes. Uh, they can, you know, the, the average length of a conversation on uh, that in, in this period is say like two to four hours, and it covers trade and it covers all kinds of subjects. Uh, so I think, you know, point number two was that, uh, you, know, you know, I think the U.S. deserved the right to no longer pay for the system. I mean, the U.S. was hindered and paid a lot uh, by imposing this artificial level of restraint at home, uh, which it had trouble doing, again, uh, for political reasons anyways. And then I think really number three, um, you know, it, it, we had kind of outgrown the system. Uh, I mean, levels of international trade had dictated that, capital movements, I mean, the system was under a lot of strain anyways. So I think, you know, the stars were beginning to align here in 1971 um, to the point where, you know, the system had served its purpose. 
it served a critical purpose in terms of post-war world economic development. Um, but had we now moved beyond that purpose, you know, with the end, uh, with the, 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 the declared end of the post-war period. And I think the conclusion was, uh, of most of Nixon's advisors, was we had moved beyond the purpose of it. There were, there were different kinds of disagreements over whether you throw the whole system out or whether you keep some tenets of it. But I think most people by 71 had moved in favor of, of pretty substantive reform of the system. You hear in this conversation President Nixon and, and John Connolly and um, Pete Peterson talking about Arthur Burns, the um, chairman of the Federal Reserve, and whether to bring him on board with this um, uh, with this idea of um, informing him about uh, ending the ending the closing the gold uh, window, uh, they felt that he uh, would be against it. But they felt that they by including him, maybe they could um, uh, you know get some buy-in from him. Um, could you who are the key principals um, in the administration um, aside from this small group um, that's that's on this that's, that's in this conversation? Um, who worked on the issue, and were there any disagreement? Were there any disagreements within the ranks? Um, you know, principally Arthur Burns or any other buddy in the administration. Well, this is a it's a it's a complicated subject, and you you can hear in the tapes the kind of play by play of Nixon uh, feeling his way into into the subject. Uh, I mean, he, he and his advisors. I mean, each of them bring a kind of expertise, uh, political, monetary, financial, you know, central banking. Uh, but there are aspects of this, because there are so many, uh, that are out of the grasp of almost everybody involved. Um, I think the issue, I, I say in my book, Richard and Nixon in Europe, that, that I hear, at least on the tapes, that, that the need to do something, that the issue is really put on Nixon's radar for the first time in, a, in about April, and Nixon sees it as really a trade issue. Uh, Pete Peterson is talking to Nixon a lot about his Council on International Economic Policy and how you know trade is not just trade. Trade is an economic issue, and trade and the economy ultimately are a foreign policy issue. And so that really gets Nixon's attention beginning in the spring. And so Peterson is involved, um, certainly on the trade issue. Connolly is Nixon's uh, Secretary of Treasury, so he's very involved. Um, then there's also concerns in terms of whatever we do. Does it have to be approved by the Fed? Well, that brings in Arthur Burns, Chairman of the Federal Reserve. On the domestic side, uh, if we're talking about a financial or economic initiative, that sounds like that might need congressional approval. So that brings in legislative affairs people. It brings in domestic policy people. And then on the foreign side, we're talking about gold and modifying Bretton Woods. I mean, these, these are international treaties. And so then the question is, do we bring in foreign policy people and State Department people, international economics people? And does the Senate need to ratify this if it's a trade? that were either ending or starting something new or modifying the Bretton Woods Agreement. So you can see it is a complicated thing. It's, it's, it's politics, it's domestic policy, it's foreign policy, it's monetary, it's economic. And not only that, but he, Nixon is a, a year out from, uh, from uh, a re-election campaign. Um, and in a previous election campaign in 1960, he felt kind of burned by the Federal Reserve. He, you know, there was a, a, a brief recession during the 60 campaign, which he'd lost so narrowly to John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. And so I think he was a little bit uh, worried in 71 of, of allowing any single entity like the Fed to control too much of whatever they decide to do, because 
uh, Nixon felt that the Fed in some way had acted unfairly toward him in 1960. So you can see, I mean, it involves just about every element uh, of the of the U.S. of the policymaking apparatus. It's a it's a very very complex situation. Luke, in in our podcast series on tapes, um, in our conversations, a common thread has been uh, the importance of secrecy in conducting diplomacy and high stakes policy. We talked about that in the China Initiative, uh, the Vietnam War, uh, the Indo-Pakistani War, and the issue of uh, the and the Yeoman Radford affair, um, as well as the um, as well as the uh, Ellsberg, the, the case with the pen, uh, the case of the Pentagon uh, Papers. Why was secrecy so important? Uh, in the in this process uh, in economic policy, international economic policy as well. Well, I, I think you you know you see in headlines even today every once in a while you see someone um, uh, you know traders in the markets find a way to get very rich very quick, and there are always concerns about insider information. Um, and this is a, a case of, of of pretty serious insider information. Uh, at one point. Uh, Paul Volcker says, who, Paul Volcker is sort of Connolly's number two guy, uh, Volcker I, I, and George Schultz, the other two I didn't mention when I was describing the cast of characters, and each of them brought their own portfolios of expertise to the topic. Volcker was kind of Connolly's number two guy who did kind of international monetary affairs at the Treasury. And Volcker at one point says to Nixon, uh, with the knowledge I have here, I could make you a billion dollars on the stock market tomorrow. Um, and so it shows you that for, at one point, Volcker says another thing. He says, fortunes can be made on the information that we have, made or lost. And so certainly for the concern over insider trading, uh, for the concern over, uh, you know, some economists, Arthur Burns was one of these, who was really I mean, almost kind of predicting a possible second depression uh, if, this, if something is, is wrong here. And you hear Connolly uh, echo the year 1938, reserve assets are the lowest point since 38. Well, anybody who lived through the Depression is going to identify that as being a Depression year. So it just, it, there's just a, a, a lot of, you know, great, some of the concern is emotional. I think some of, it's, um, uh, some of it is quite legitimate. Uh, but I think secrecy is important for, for a number of reasons, for the politics of it, for the insider information involved. Uh, plus, I mean, as you say, Nixon's planning these summits with China and the Soviet Union, and he's sure going to make sure he goes to those summits looking strong. Well, if, the, if we cause a, a great disaster here in 71 on the economy uh, and possibly cause a recession or even a depression, that's going to possibly ruin his other initiatives if it looks like it's you know, either his fault or at least his, his, his country's fault uh, for not managing this economic issue very, very, uh, very well. So I think Nixon's concerns, I mean, his, his hair must have been raised on the back of his neck for just about every possible reason. Uh, so secrecy was was certainly very much needed. Let's listen. Let's listen to the second tape, um, second conversation of August second, uh, nineteen seventy one. This is President Nixon and Treasury Secretary uh, John Connolly in the Oval Office. Seems to me there are two essential problems involved here. Uh, one is the international problem. They obviously impinge on each other, but one is the international problem. Two is the domestic problem. And each of those have a number of facets. But in the international field, the problem is one, the convertibility of dollars to gold. Yeah. And we're going to have to stop that at some point. 
everybody, I say everybody, most people tend to think that $10 billion in gold is the point below which we should not go. Yeah, you can start convertibility very easy, as I say, by just saying so. The next thing is that you probably ought to float. Uh, this means changing the exchange rates uh, with the other currencies of the world, just like Germany's doing with us now. You have a floating currency like Canada's doing with us now. That You can take those steps without rebounding gold. Now, Arthur's going to be a double the price of gold. It's going to really solve it. Uh, but that's a trading position that we can keep. And, but out of this, this these two steps can take, be taken very simply. But whatever we do in the international field ought to be coupled, it seems to me, with action on the domestic front so that they tend to shield each other. Now, what are your problems on the domestic front in the economic field? Number one, it is inflation. Number two, it's this whole question of whether or not you're going to have an income policy. Number three, it is a question of whether or not uh, we're, we have a bad situation with respect to balance of payments, and we do. Uh, number four, it's a question of how we can reconstitute our trade to be more competitive around the world. Now, all of these things have great political value to you at home. So, at, at this point in time, and I'm not trying to sell this, I'm merely, I'm merely trying to paint a, a picture of what can be done with, with no political downside, it seems to me, at all, and, and a great deal of upside. If you announce that you're spending gold, that you're floating, then you couple with that language about you're going to look for a reserve currency, you're going to help to reestablish the firm order, the international field, and so forth. But then you say, recognize that we have problems at home, and that coupled with that, you're going to put a ceiling on spending in the Congress. And we pick a figure. Uh, let's assume that for the moment you want to, you want to give up, just announce, I'm going to forego, I'm going to ask the Congress to withdraw. My recommendation to a general revenue share. That would save us $5 billion. Uh, I'm going to ask that, that we forego H.R. 1. Uh, I'm just picking an example. Get a figure. That would give you $4 billion. That's $9 billion. You say, I'm going to reduce spending $10 billion below what I recommend. So this gives you a, a strong position of fiscal responsibility. Then you say, I'm going to impose a 10% border tax on all imports into this country until such time as we renegotiate uh, uh, our currency uh, parity rates with other countries around the world because we are non-competitive. That was John Connolly talking to President uh, Nixon. Um, Connolly says something interesting here. Closing the window solves the international problem, but there's also a domestic problem. He proposes a domestic action by employing wage and price controls and an import tax. How do these actions, uh, Luke, solve the domestic issue of the economy? Well, I, I, you know, I, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing because you know, we have this conversation where, where Connolly's really laying out the complexity and all the possible moving parts of, of a possible solution. 
we, we don't get kind of the exact rationale for each. Uh, my take after listening to the uh, the 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 various conversations um, there are about fifty hours of conversations is that what Nixon ultimately decides to do is to do a kind of something for everyone approach. Uh, each person involved in this had certain fears. Each person involved in this had certain things they either wanted or recommended. And so with this very liberal international policy of changing the gold window, Connolly recommends this very um, uh, protectionist uh, domestic policies, which would not only shield against things that might go wrong in the, the international field, because we're not really sure yet until Pandora's box is opened, but it would also Connolly says be domestically, uh, politically good for Nixon a year out from the election campaign and remind people that he's looking out for, for them, he's looking out for uh, sort of America first, and actually uses a number of this these kinds of uh, terminologies when, when talking about the advantages of these. So I think you pair the very sort of liberal, you know, out-of-our-control international solution with protectionist domestic policies. And as I say, it, it, you know, I think ultimately Nixon doesn't really say in the tapes he feels strongly about any of these, but I think that the view is this was uh, he, he's giving something and kind of making everybody happy. Nixon later says in his memoir that... Um that he regretted imposing wage and price controls. Um, but back in the early 1970s, um, he wanted his economic aides to think long-term about the, about the U.S. economy. Um, do you think that um, he had any other choice but to impose wage and price controls? It's a good question. You know, if Nixon were not writing his, was not writing his memoirs, um, during a period of a, of a great economic recession in the late 70s, he might have felt differently had he been writing uh, maybe 10 years later. Um, you know, at the time in the late 70s, many economists thought that the protectionist maneuvers that he had done in the early 70s did, were not helpful you know, to the later recession in the late 70s, uh, when we had stagflation and double-digit unemployment, double-digit interest rates, double-digit inflation, uh, pretty much every measure was going the wrong direction in the late 70s. But things were different in the early 70s. Uh, I think it was good politics to do these things. I think no one was giving dire warnings uh, in the early 70s that these were bad. I mean, Arthur Burns, for one, chairman of the Fed, liked the protectionist aspects of the eventual Bretton Woods solution. So I think the view was very different in the early 70s. It was optimistic. We were moving towards a big re-election. They were popular in the country. There didn't seem to be any big downside. So I think Nixon might have, you know, resented or didn't like it several years later, but there, he, wasn't, he wasn't getting any advice along those lines in the early 70s while this was being formulated. Let's listen to the next conversation of August 12, 1971. Uh, this is three days before the big announcement on August 15th. Uh, this is in the executive office building, uh, Nixon's office in the executive office building, and this is... Um, uh, the president with uh, Treasury Secretary John Connolly and the director of the Office of Management and Budget, uh, George Schultz. You know, happened, I have to say, of course, when you do this, but the way I had it positioned, this is the way it was done, and I mean, just setting it up, was that you would make an announcement to the effect that because of speculation against the dollar, that the United States and that we were temporarily closed. 
say on the budgetary front, put them off a little bit. If you say it's going to have a wage price and they can freeze, as you know, then the, the cat's out of the bag. They'll all raise their prices and uh, we're screwed. Uh, so you might throw them off on that if we're going to take action or something of that sort. And then three weeks from now, go the other. Now that's one way of playing. The other way of playing is to, is to do exactly the reverse. And that is just to announce now only to announce only the wage price three. Just that. Uh, that's another way to do it. And then figure that, that will uh, sort of stabilize the, uh, that that might, might, as you said, stabilize the situation. And then uh, then come up with our legislative package on taxes, on uh, including the border tax and so forth at the later point. And then if necessary, uh, as necessary, work out your international problem on a negotiated basis rather than on unilaterally closing the goal Well, that's another way to get In this conversation, um, there's Nixon sort of debating with himself and discussing with Schultz and Connolly this idea of what should be done uh, and when it should be done. Uh, closing the gold window, imposing the wage price controls, and an import tax. Uh, what should be done first? Should all this be done uh, in piecemeal? Um, or should they be done all at once? Um, what are some of the political considerations, uh, in your opinion, of doing this all at once or doing it piecemeal? Well, I think there are a number of considerations. I, I think the first thing, um, you know, 10 days had elapsed from August 2nd to August 12th um, from the, the two, two clips ago that we listened to to the one we just listened to. And I think one thing, one thing that's clear is that Nixon is a lot um, more organized in terms of what he thinks needs to be done, um, not necessarily in kind of how it's done or how it's sequenced, and what the various rules are regulating different pe different parts of the package, but you can tell his thinking is a lot more clear. I mean, he's the one kind of leading the discussions, as opposed to earlier, he's he's really still hearing from his advisors on what they think. Uh, you know, I think there are several concerns. You know, for example, he's Nixon's trying to figure out. You know, does Congress need to uh, be involved in the decision related to gold? Typically, um, legislatures across the world have a say in devaluing and revaluing and and modifying the Bretton Woods Agreement. Well, Congress is on recess at this point, uh, so they're not around. So if Nixon's going to do this, they're, they're not going to be there unless an emergency session is called. Um, the other thing is, if, if you do this while the markets are open, so you're doing it kind of you know, during the work week, Monday through Friday, Eastern time, while the New York Stock Exchange and, um, and the, the financial markets are open, um, the markets are going to take a hit. In fact, they might even have to make an emergency closing. And so then there's the other advantage of, do you want to do this at a time other than when the markets are open? The markets are going to boil no matter what, but do you want to minimize the hit on the markets? Um, and so you've got, you know, the government gone. Most of our allied governments are also on some kind of recess. You've got the concern about the markets. Um, and, and he's still not clear over, you know, how much does Congress really need to be involved? Um, so I think, you know, there, there are various elements uh, that he's still not sure yet. But going into the weekend here, where this will all be decided at Camp David, uh, you can tell his thinking is a lot clearer than it was just a week or two before. So this is on Thursday. Uh, when do they ultimately go to Camp David? 
they go on Friday, Friday the 13th, and they spend the weekend um, there, uh, and 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 while there, you know, decide on what what's going to be done. And who were the key principals in that meeting? It was a big group. I don't know how many total, but I would guess about fifteen or twenty. Uh, most of his economic advisors, uh, Arthur Burns, the domestic people. Um, the only ones that were really noticeably absent were like uh, Henry Kissinger was away on some secret travel. Um, and Nixon still didn't really think about this yet as a foreign policy issue. You know, he doesn't come around to that view until the fall when Kissinger is much more involved and Rogers is more involved, Secretary of State. But it's a, it's a wide range of, I'd say, primarily domestic, treasury, uh, and economic advisors. And uh, what, was ultimately, what was ultimately decided? Do they decide to go with all three measures, or do they do a partial? Well... So Nixon comes on, Nixon decides, uh, he comes on live television on Sunday evening, uh, it's August 15th, he preempts the the very uh, popular show Bonanza on Sunday evening, and he announces what he calls his new economic policy. Uh, the new economic policy is a, is a term that actually came from the name of the original Soviet five-year economic plans, and some of his aides didn't quite like the, the, the rebranding of that. Uh, but, in, but in essence... Um, he announced that the dollar and major world currencies would begin uh, floating, uh, they, and they floated ever since, un- uninterrupted since 1973. Uh, there would be a 10% tax on imports. He announced a Buy America program, um, and that you know dollars could no longer be converted for gold. That was phased out. The last year, I believe, the Treasury, where you could, you could literally take dollars to the Department of Treasury and get gold in reserve was 1975 in the cash room which is still there today, although used for a different purpose. Um, so he, Nixon announces the whole package on August 15, 1971, on a Sunday evening while the markets were closed, uh, and I think got just about everything he wanted. And what was the, what was the reaction of Wall Street? Well, the markets were closed for a few days, and they were around the, around the world, too. Um, you know, it took a, a period of settling in. There were tough negotiations in the fall, between the U.S., Japan, and Europe that led uh, up to the Smithsonian Agreement in December of 71. And then uh, new Secretary of Treasury Schultz is still dealing with some of this into 73 and finalizing it, uh, and he replaces Connolly. Um, but in the end, um, the, the economy saw upward movement. Uh, Nixon was reelected in a landslide in 72. So I think in the short term, he got it was difficult, but he got just about everything politically and economically that he wanted. Uh, the, the downside was in the longer term, into the late 70s, uh, you know, how much of these decisions had a negative impact on the recession that was already happening. Um, so that, you know, that's difficult to tease out. Uh, but, it, you know, in, in the big picture, I think it was right to remove the United States as the fulcrum from the system. It was unreasonable for the U.S. to, to pay for the cost of this, this outdated system. Uh, and in the end, you know, many economists and economic historians has said this decision was really the beginning of the, the you know modern globalization movement, uh, for better or for worse. That you know we we removed the limits on growth, uh, but when recessions happen, we removed the limits on how how far we can fall. So there's a pro and a con to all this globalization, and many attribute these uh, decisions that Nixon made in 1971 to be the beginning of this uh, this modern movement. Our guest today is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. Our topic was the Nixon White House taping system as it pertains to President Nixon's decision to take America out of the Bretton Woods Agreement and close the gold window in 1971. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been complicated but fun.
Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroidis and your Belinda.